morning, everyone. Good to see you today. We are, as Joanna said, beginning a new message series today. We're going to take four weeks to look at the various ways that people come and then see who Jesus is and then eventually decide to follow him. Our guide in this series is going to be the first four chapters of the book of John in the New Testament. Now, John is one of the books in the New Testament portion of the Bible that's called a gospel. There are four of them, and John is one of them. The word gospel uh, is an old English translation of the Greek word that's used in the New Testament, and it literally means good news. Gospel means good news. And these four books are a biography about the life of Jesus Christ. Now, if a biography was written about your life, I wonder what the title might be over the, the top of the, the book. Now, for Jesus, the title is Good News or gospel. And that's because the best possible news that anyone could ever hear is about how to fix the break in their relationship with God that's been caused by their sin. But this good news does not become good news for us until we accept the offer that Jesus gives and we decide to follow him. But standing between us and this offer, there are always obstacles for everyone. Now, if you've already decided to follow Jesus Christ, do you remember what some of the obstacles were that were holding you back before you decided to follow Jesus Christ? For me, one of the big obstacles was just a lot of intellectual questions. I tend to be skeptical in nature, and as time went on, uh, I just had a lot of questions piling up in my mind. But in a room of this size with this many people, uh, there's going to be a range of where everyone's at in terms of their commitment to Christ. Some in this room have already decided to follow him. Others are actively exploring what that might mean. But all of us are somewhere on this commitment continuum. Even if we've decided to follow Jesus Christ, there there are a lot of obstacles that are in the way that keep us maybe from growing to a deeper level of commitment. In the first four chapters of the Gospel of John, we see four of the common ways that God helps us get past those obstacles. In chapter 1, we see how God uses other people, kind of like bridges that that give us a a glimpse of what it might be like if we were to cross over to the other side of our decision about Jesus and follow him. In chapter 2, we see how God uses particular kinds of encounters to get us to come and see these obstacles and challenge us to move past them. In chapter 3, we see evidence that God often gives us a period of time where we just kind of sort, where we're taking new information in, we're learning, we're trying to figure out, is, is this something we really want to do? It's a, it's a period of sorting. Then in chapter 4, we see how God builds thirst on the inside for us to restore our relationship with God and to live for Him. Now, Elliot, who is our Connections pastor here at Seabreeze, was going to start off today on chapter 1, the Bridges one, but he got sick, so... I'm speaking today, and we're going to talk about chapter 2. And the reason is, is this week we had our annual staff planning retreat planned, and we were going to be out of town pretty much all week anyway. So I got ahead, and I was ready to speak next Sunday. We even had these programs printed up. So if you uh, have been noticing on the top of the program, it says August 18. We know that it's not August 18. We know it's August 8. And we know that uh, 2 follows 1, doesn't precede 1. But we're going to flip these around. And we're going to start with chapter 2, and then God willing, if Elliot is better next week, then he will pick up on the Bridges one in John chapter 1. So today we're going to look at the encounters and how God uses that in our life. Now an encounter is an event that forces us to to reconsider what we're doing, the direction we're heading. 
The root of the word encounter is counter, which means against or opposed to. And what God does is he brings circumstances and sometimes people into our lives that that are kind of a, a counter to way, the way we're going and what we're doing, that, that get us to stop and think about what we're doing. And we see evidence of this in John chapter 2. When I was 19, I spent the summer in the Philippine Islands. I intended it to be a time of uh, getting a chance to see this interesting part of the world, and I did do that. But God had more in mind than I did. God intended this to be a major encounter in my life. I encountered a lot of people my own age who did not believe what I did. And what that did is that pushed to the surface all of the unanswered questions that I had about the Christian faith. As they would ask me why I believed this, I realized I don't really have an answer for that. I've been wondering about that too. Before this encounter, I would push these questions kind of to the back of my mind, but I couldn't do that this summer in the Philippines. And what I didn't realize until after is that all of those questions that had been accumulating that I'd been pushing to the back of my mind, they really kept me from making a serious commitment to follow Jesus Christ. Because when you've got a lot of, well, I don't know about that, questions, you really can't put much weight on who Jesus really is. So as a result of that summer, I came back and I decided I got to figure this out. So I pulled out all of my questions, began to compile them, and then for the next two years, I ended up reading uh, a large portion of most of the texts of the major world religions. I wanted to know, well, what do other people think and what do other people believe in these matters? And then I read a lot of philosophy. Philosophy is basically a record of, of a lot of intelligent people thinking about the big questions of life. Like, how do we know what's true? And how do we d- determine what our purpose is in life? And what's the way we come to, to explore these things? And so I did a lot of reading and a lot of thinking. And... After the end of two years, I became convinced for myself that the Bible really is true, that the evidence is compelling, that it is very unique and very different from any of the other texts of the other religions. Sometimes people say, well, they all basically say the same things, and I know immediately, oh, you haven't read them, have you? Because if you read them, you realize they're very, very different. And so I became to understand that this really was true, and I became convinced that Jesus really was the best news that this world, and me in particular, could ever have heard. And what I also did is I learned from that encounter, I learned to, to push the questions that kept bubbling to the surface in my mind, to, to not stop pushing them to the back, but to bring them to the forefront. Uh, this wasn't the end of all my questions. In fact, I'm still a very skeptical person. I often read things in the Bible, and one of my first thoughts is, well, that doesn't make any sense. And rather than, oh, no, I can't think that, I lean into that, and I begin to ask questions, and I gain a lot of understanding as a result of that approach. And I don't think that any of this would have happened without that encounter in the Philippines. It turns out that encounters like this are not random happenstances, but appointments set up by God to help us come and see the obstacles that are standing between us and faith. Without these encounters, we'll just keep going the way we're going. It's only when we face some kind of opposition in life that we are forced to evaluate the path that we are on and reconsider it. So in John chapter 2, the chapter we're going to look at this morning, we see two of the most common kinds of encounters that God initiates to help us get past our faith obstacles. The first kind of encounter 
I call the need encounter. The need encounter. We come up against a need. We need help in some way. And God miraculously addresses that need. And that helps us see who he is. The particular story in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, that describes this is of a scene at at a wedding reception. So let me read the story to you, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. Obviously, they can't tell the difference at that point. But you have saved the best, the best wine till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. So here's the scene. Jesus, his mother, and his disciples are invited to an attendance at a wedding. And the hosts of the wedding reception run out of the wine. Mary becomes aware of this need, asks Jesus Jesus to meet it. Now you have to understand that this is about much more than just the need for wine at a wedding reception. You see, in those days, it was the groom's family, not the bride's family, that would cover the entire cost of the wedding. The purpose of this was to give evidence that the groom, in particular the groom's family that he was coming from, had the financial resources to provide for the woman in this culture. So running out of wine would have called into question if this groom could in fact provide for his bride. And I guarantee you that this was definitely a question on the mind of the bride's father. So just imagine the embarrassment and the pressure the groom and his family were feeling when they got news that they were running out of wine. Now what's amazing to me is that this was the occasion of the very first miracle that Jesus did. I mean, it's such an ordinary, behind-the-scenes kind of need to meet. I mean, I know no wedding is ordinary for the families that are a part of it, but weddings are about as normal as life gets, about as ordinary as it happens. And so it seems hardly worthy of uh, as a scene for the very first miracle that Jesus did. I mean, apart from the servants, maybe the groom's family and Jesus' disciples, no one else would have even known what had happened. Why not a more public need to be met? for the very first miracle. I mean, something like feeding thousands of people like Jesus did later, or providing water. I mean, food and water in a desert nation like this were always a huge need. That would have made a much bigger public splash than this kind of behind-the-scenes approach at a wedding reception. Well, God doesn't usually meet needs publicly. If he did, 
there would be a public response to him, not the personal response that faith decisions require. In fact, this is why Jesus was reluctant to do this miracle. I mean, at first it sounds kind of like a typical mom-son exchange with the mom bragging about what her son can do and the son saying something like, Mom, but that's not what was going on here. Jesus was very, very careful about when and where he did miracles, especially in the early part of his public life and especially the very first miracle. In fact, you'll notice oftentimes he tells people to keep his miracles quiet. For example, after healing two blind men, he said in Matthew 9.30, see that no one knows. After healing a deaf man in Mark 7.36, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. Then after healing ten leopards, he says, don't tell anyone in Luke 5.14. The reason for this is that God meets needs like this one and like our needs not to attract mercenaries who will follow him just for the need benefits that he offers. God brings us to the point of need to show us that behind whatever need we have is our bigger need for him. That's why it says at the end of this story, he thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. This was the point of this miracle and every miracle that Jesus does. The point is to give them and us a visible glimpse of what is now invisible. That is God's glory. There will be a day when the glory of God will shine for all of us to see and it will not be ignored. It could not, it cannot, it, it, there's no way you can ignore it. But for now, we can live our lives and never see the glory of God. And so God often brings us to the point of need and then miraculously provides for that need to just give us a little glimpse of his glory, of the fact that he is real. Now, if Jesus then and now was in the business of public need meeting, that would be a different kind of response. Whenever needs are met publicly, those who, whose needs are met always feel entitled by it, never grateful. That's what happens when a government meets needs. So God doesn't meet needs publicly. He does his need meeting one-on-one, -on -one, case by case. Because the point of meeting our needs is to show us that he is real and worthy of our trust. Not that he pays better than anyone else, that he offers better benefits than anything else in life. So only after Jesus had figured out a way to meet this need at this wedding in a behind-the-scenes kind of manner did he agree to do it. This is what was really going on in the conversation between he and his mom. It had to be in a more private way, not a public display of his power, but a private display. And this is what God does to this day. See, it turns out that need is the doorway to faith. Our need is often the doorway to faith. It's, it's God opening the door so that we can see him on the other side of the, of the door. And so, Jesus, now, as he did then, at this wedding, he will meet you in a moment of your need. And he will show you that he is real. I don't know when he will do that. I don't know how he will do that. Now, it won't be something that will gather crowds. 
So don't run from your need. Don't pretend that you've got it all covered, that you don't need anything. Be honest at your point of need and ask for help. Now, if you are on the pre-belief side of faith, ask God to show you that he's real. That's a great prayer for you to pray. Just simply pray, God, I don't, I don't know if all this is real. I'm checking it out, but I'm not sure if this is real. Could you show me that you're real? That's a great prayer. Ask for help. Now, God will not answer demands. If you say, God, I'm not going to believe you're real unless you do this at this time and in this way, you can be assured he won't because he doesn't play that game. But he will respond to honest cries for help. So ask. Ask for a miracle. It's probably not going to be 150 gallons of wine, but it'll be something. He will show up in a way, if you're honest, you will look at it and say, huh, I don't know how that happened. Only God could have done that. What's happening at that point is is God is just opening the door of faith and saying, you see, I'm here. You usually can't see me, but in this moment, in this way, you can. Put your faith in me. But just because the doorway to faith has been opened miraculously, and you've now seen a glimpse of the God who was on the other side, that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll cross the threshold and follow Jesus. And that's what happened with this first miracle. Apparently, word got out about the 150 gallons of free wine that Jesus made, and the mercenaries started to show up looking for their handouts. So weeks later, in this same chapter, we read this, John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now, while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus didn't trust it. He wouldn't entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So Jesus sees this large group gathering, and he knows that for most of the people in this group, they have not decided to follow him. They're just following the benefits that he currently is offering as he does these miracles. So he didn't trust their motives. Why? He knows us. He knows people. He knows what's inside each person. Well, what's inside each person? Selfishness. I mean, that's just true of all of us. We will most naturally do whatever benefits us. And whenever the benefits dry up, well, we're just off to the next watering hole. And Jesus was just about the best watering hole that was available at this point in time. And Jesus knows that as soon as he's gone or as soon as he stops doing what they want him to do, they're gone too. They haven't actually made a decision to follow him. They're just following the benefits, not him. What it says is they believed in his name. What does that mean? What is his name? His name points to the fact that he's the Messiah. That's what he claimed to be, the Messiah, the promised Messiah. And they saw the miracles, and they believed he is the Messiah. The problem is their idea of Messiah was not God's idea of Messiah. They all expected the Messiah to make their, better, their life better now. But when it turns out he didn't, they stopped believing in his name. They stopped believing and following him. It turns out Jesus was about offering eternal life. 
not fixing life now. Now, there are tremendous benefits in this life to follow Jesus, but they tend to show up over time. They take years sometimes to show up. And sometimes the benefits don't show up until eternity. And so, in addition to the need encounter, there's a different kind of encounter that we need to get us to move past the door and decide to commit to follow Jesus as Lord, as boss. And that's the next encounter we find in John chapter 2. That is, I call this the no encounter. First, there's the need encounter. Secondly, is the no encounter. This occurs simply when God says no to us in some area of life. That forces us to make a decision. Here's the example of the no encounter in John chapter 2, verses 12 through 21. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. This was a prophecy of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous signs can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he spoke of was his body. Already he was dropping the crumbs of evidence that would point to his resurrection three days after his crucifixion when people could go back and say, he said this would happen. But here's what was going on in this encounter. Jesus walks into the temple in Jerusalem and sees all of the selling going on in the temple courts, and he says one big no. Stop it. No. Now, this was not people making an honest living selling cattle, sheep, and doves. This was people taking advantage of those who had come a long distance to the temple to offer their sacrifices. See, Jerusalem was the only location that the temple was. Most people would have to walk on foot a long distance to get there, and they only did this once a year usually. And they couldn't travel that great distance with the cattle and the sheep and the doves that were required for the sacrifices. And they didn't have money for the most part. There was currency around and available. There were coins, but they were not, it wasn't widely used, not like we use money now. Most people were still on kind of a barter system. They would grow or make things and then sell that for what they needed, and they would exchange and trade in a barter way. So when it comes to making this long trip, what they would bring to Jerusalem with them were things that they had grown, produce, crops, or things, something that they had made that they could sell. And then they would come to the temple and they would sell these to the money changers. They would basically exchange, here's this product and then you can give me this money for it. The problem is the money changers had a captive audience and so the money changers would give them very little of what it was really worth. They basically would rip them off in buying their products 
They had no one else to sell to, so they had to sell it to the money changers. And then they would take the little bit of money they'd gotten from selling the products they'd brought with them, and then they had to take that money, and they had to buy the items for the sacrifice, the cattle, sheep, or the doves. And the same thing would happen with those selling the, the cattle, sheep, and the doves. They would, they would charge them extortion prices because, again, they had a captive audience. They traveled all this way. What are you going to do? Say, oh, oh, I can't do it? No. They would, they would rip them off. So basically they were ripped off in the selling and then ripped off in the buying. And Jesus sees this, and he is furious. You can understand why. How dare you take advantage of people who have very little to the name and who travel all this way to worship me and offer sacrifices to me. You rip them off when you purchase their stuff, and then you rip them off when they, sell, when you, when they buy from you. And he was furious. So he said no, emphatically no. Now, you and I have not done temple extortion, but we're all guilty of doing wrong. And there are areas in our life where God finally says, no. No. So like in this temple encounter, at a time and place of his choosing, God encountered us with a circumstance that says no. Maybe he says no. You can't have that. Maybe it's something good even that you've had for a while, but for some reason now God says no. Not anymore. Or he says, no, you can't do that. But everyone else is doing it. I don't care. No, you can't do that. Or no, I don't agree with your thinking on that. But everyone else says, doesn't matter. No. And it's not until God says no to us that we are forced to decide whether or not we will trust him enough to follow him and do what he says. So here's the way these encounters work. Need as we said, is the doorway to faith. It's God opening the doorway and saying, you see, there's more to life than meets the eye. I'm here. I'm real. You normally can't see me, but now you've seen me as I meet this need. It opens the doorway to faith. It's how God opens our eyes to see that he's real. But no is the threshold to commitment. It's the point. It's the encounter at which we decide whether or not we will step through that open door and give our lives to the one who made us and died for us. And it's not until God says no that we are forced to make a decision. Will I alter my thoughts and my actions and my preferences and obey Jesus and trust him or not? You see, as long as we don't have the no encounter, everything's going fine, and then God says no and he asks us to follow in this direction, and we want to say yes. And it's that the why in the road that we decide at that point, are we going to cross the threshold or are we just going to hang out here? Because when God says no, there's only two options for us. We either say yes to his no or we say no to his no. It's the threshold of commitment decision. Now, our preference is to nod in Jesus' direction, not bow before him and follow We don't want to make commitments to him or really in most of, uh, of life because what a commitment does is it puts a limit on your life. It's why we'd prefer to put in C-level effort, particularly when it comes to faith. We don't want to put in an A-level effort. In the last book of the Bible, Jesus has something to say about the C-level effort. 
of those in a church in a city called Laodicea. Here's what he says in Revelation 3, 15 through 16. These are the words of Jesus. He says, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. The evidence is that you're neither hot or cold. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I'm gagging over here. So Jesus gives this church the grade of C. They're being average. They're not great. They're not horrible. Now, to be honest, this is the spiritual goal of a lot of people. They don't want to get too extreme on this stuff. I have the sense to know that a failing grade spiritually is probably not good. They don't want to get an F. They don't want to be evil. But they don't want to pay the price of going for A either. I mean, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of sacrifice. Average, then, seems to kind of be the way to go. Middle of the pack, C. What it does, C-level effort, produces nice, respectable people who honestly end up doing very little to advance the kingdom of God here on earth. But Jesus, it turns out, is not pleased with C. That's why he makes this shocking statement. He says he wants to spit them out of his mouth. What could possibly be so wrong with being average? I mean, spitting out of your mouth wrong. Well, there's an image behind what Jesus is talking about here that everyone receiving these words in Laodicea would have known. Laodicea had a water source that was six, it was a spring six miles away from the city center. And the water from this spring would travel six miles above ground through an aqueduct that had been constructed by the Romans. And so by the time the water arrived in Laodicea, it was lukewarm and tasting awful. This is what Laodicea was known for, lukewarm, awful-tasting water. Now, when it comes to water, we like water hot or cold. That's why we like our beverages, a hot beverage or a cold beverage. I mean, when I go to Starbucks and order something, they often say, you want that hot or cold? I've never had them ask me, would you like that lukewarm? lukewarm? Would you like a tempered kind of room temperature kind of drink? No. I'm in the mood for a hot drink or a cold drink. The point that Jesus is making here is the same way we feel about water is the way he feels about commitments, particularly commitments to him. A commitment requires a hot or a cold response, a yes, a simple yes or a no. Because a commitment requires an A-level effort. If you don't want to put in an A-level effort, then just be honest and say no. No, I'm going I'm to get an F on this one. C-level effort is just a waste of everybody's time. I mean, if you decide to get married and then you end up putting in a C-level effort in your marriage, you're going to end up losing your marriage or it's just going to be miserable. It's going to be a lukewarm, ugh, gagging kind of experience. It would have been better for you to just say no at the beginning, to say, you know what, I'm way too selfish to get married. I'm going to need to do some growing before I get married. This is just the way all commitments are. And Jesus says something pretty interesting. He says there's something good going on that those who are both hot and cold towards me have in common. And that is they've both made their decision. They've both decided. One has walked away from the door and said, I don't have anything to do with this. The other has walked through the door and said, I'm following. 
It's this hanging out at the door stuff I can't stand, Jesus says. The one who says no to Jesus is closer to the truth than the one who smiles at him, but then does what they want to do. So to force us to make an A or an F, a hot or a cold, a yes or a no decision, Jesus encounters us with a no. And it forces us to decide who we think's in charge. Is it us or is it Jesus? That's what a no does. Oh, no, no, I'm in charge. So I'm going to say no to your no. Or I realize you're in charge, so I'm going to say yes to your no. You know, those who encountered the no of Jesus in the temple that day, here's how they responded to that no encounter. Here's what they said. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Well, he'd already done one miracle at least, maybe more by now. And he would proceed to do a bunch of miracles. But as you follow these people in the temple, this group of people and the ones like them, no amount of miracles would ever change them. The reason is, They didn't want to turn control of their life over to Jesus, really to anyone. The no encounter made that clear. They kept hanging out the door and saying, could you open it again? Are you going to cross? No. Let me see again. Do more. Do more. God says, no, you've already seen. You just got to decide. So he makes the no encounter. For those of you who've made a commitment to follow Jesus, can you remember what the no moment was for you? When you decided, okay. I'm going to cross the threshold, and I'm actually going to follow. I know it won't be perfect, but I'm going to get to the other side of this thing. I remember what it was for me. It was a no about my dating life. That was a hard no to hear. It wasn't an audible no. I mean, it wasn't that I heard heaven say no when I was out on some date. No, as I read the Bible, I encountered a strong no in the way I was dating, in the way I was relating to the opposite sex. And as I I encountered that no, I had to make a decision. Am I going to say no to God's no, or am I going to say yes? And I'm so glad I said yes. I took a whole year. I stopped dating. I took a whole year just to figure out how God might want me to date if I ever date again. I knew how not to do it. I wasn't sure how to do it. So it took a whole year before I ever dated. The next date was with my wife. You see, God doesn't say no to diminish our life. He says no to bless us. He says no to tell us the truth about ourselves and this world and to put us on the path of of a life that's eternal. That, that begins now and goes into forever. But that dating no for me marked the point at which I decided, all right, I'm not in charge. All right. And to be honest, it wasn't the last no <laughs> that I've heard. Even after I crossed that threshold again and again, I've encountered God's no. In the circumstances of life, no, you can't have that. But I wanted that. No, you can't do that, but I'm going to look silly if I don't. I've encountered God's no in the circumstances of life and in the pages of the Bible. 
And every time I say yes to his no, not immediately, but eventually, I'm so grateful. You see, we prefer to hang out at the threshold, keep our options open, not make any commitments. And God will just keep encountering us with the no. But let me warn you about hanging out at the threshold. There will be a day when God says, all right, you've made your decision. The door is now closed. No more peekaboo. You got to decide. I don't know when that happens, but I've seen that happen. So the question that we all need to ask is, where is Jesus saying no in your life? Notice something you want. Notice something you think. It's an invitation for you either to cross that threshold for the first time or to move farther in your relationship with him and trust him more deeply. As I've seen other people and as I've encountered it, whenever God says a no, I'm on the doorstep of growth. If I say yes. Now, all around us are people who are encountering God. This is happening all the time. They're encountering a need. They're encountering a no. And we are present in their lives, not just to observe, but we are present like bridges that God uses to help and support people as they encounter God. Elliot's going to talk more about this next Sunday. But to be a bridge, to be of help to people who are encountering God, we need to be present. We we need to be there. Not all the time, but enough. So to help and encourage us to be present, we've created an opportunity. We did this last summer, at the end of the summer, and we want to do this again. We've created these barbecue boxes for you to use to host a barbecue. You know, fall is approaching. You may not want to hear that, but fall is approaching. And you know what fall means? Life gets busier. I know the summer's been busy, but fall is almost always busier. And so this is a great time, the end of the summer, to have a barbecue. Inside these boxes, we've got a start here letter that describes the goal of the box and gives you some ideas. Um, We've got, there's some spices in there, particular spice mix for some guacamole provided by Bill Bracken. I'm looking forward to trying that one out. We've got some suggested menu items, some suggested game ideas, but this is a barbecue for you to host. And it's just an opportunity to think about, now God, who in my life is pre-belief? What friends, what neighbors might I invite over for a barbecue just to have fun? Strike up a conversation. Take an interest, deepen the relationship, and see where the conversation might go. So it's the end of summer. Grab a box. We've got a bunch of them on your way out. You can just grab them on your way out. They're on the patio. And may God use this opportunity to see people come to know him. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you do not leave us where we are. As one writer has so accurately said, you are the hound of heaven. You pursue us, you track us down. You are unwilling to leave us until the point at which we see you face to face and have the shock of our lives. You want us to see the truth now. You want us to have the chance to make some decisions now before we've wasted our entire life on what really doesn't matter. And so you meet us in our needs. 
You bring us to the point of need where we realize we're in over our head and we need help. And so I pray for those today who are at the point of need. God, I pray that you would, you would miraculously show up in some way. That they would get a chance to see how real you are. I pray for those today who are facing the no encounter. They're busy justifying why they know better than you and why your ideas are antiquated and old and don't matter anymore. But it's just an opportunity for them to cross the threshold and follow you into the blessings that begin here and go echo into all of eternity. So I pray for those right now who are struggling now, and right now they're thinking, no, I, ca I can't do that. God, I pray you'd give them the courage to say yes to your no. We thank you for encountering us in the flow of life. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.